we are not going to be in a world where you know, we have these rampant robots which have had you know, wrong input you know, going crazy and, and destroying the world. That was Jeremy Barnes, founder and CEO of Datacratic, as we continue with part two of our podcast on machine learning. No doom and gloom here as we hear more from Madeline Mihalescu and Jeremy about how to get the most of your data and models and how to leverage the spectrum of machine learning offerings. This is John Pryle. Welcome to the Impact Podcast. Let's drill a bit into, into what your current company does. I think we, you did a sort of a great level setting, uh, Jeremy, just talking about machine learning at large and, and problems. I want to give you a chance to to tell us a bit about Datacratic and tell us a bit about the the new tool you guys uh, you guys have released. Yeah, so maybe what I'll do is I'll I'll tell you a little bit about what we've worked on. We've been around since two thousand and ten, and yeah, that'll give you a bit of background as to see what we uh, has released recently and how it fits in. So yeah, the tool that we released is called MLDB. It's the machine learning database that's available at mldb.ai. And it's a, it's a machine learning platform which has an open source core and it has the ability to add plugins to it to make it more powerful. What exactly is a machine learning database? So machine learning database is, is a new term which, which we invented, uh, obviously. And the reason that we called our offering the machine learning database was the realization that although when people think of machine learning, they typically think of algorithms, those algorithms need to be matched with data in order to be able to effectively work. And your data in the end, you know, a data storage system is a database. So what we were able to do was by designing the algorithms and the data storage together, we were able to achieve a lot of the efficiencies which our system provides and make a, you know, a much more efficient overall solution there. So because it included both the algorithms and the database and because it's accessible via SQL, uh, we decided to call the system a machine learning database because people can think of it as a database but instead of predicting the past from you know, aggregating past events, it can predict the future. I like it. I like the term. And I like the efficiency play, especially these days where uh, people so easily jump on the next uh, machine learning library that, that enables horizontal scale out and it's, it's not designed with efficiency in mind, nor is it designed with this coupling of algorithms and, and data storage, which I think is quite interesting. You talked about design points from a technology view. What are some business design points? The, it, we design that tool as something which makes machine learning more effective at solving business problems and solving them very, very quickly. So you can get from a problem to a production-ready solution in very little time. And it, it also solves a lot of the efficiency problems so that you can kind of more blindly try machine learning uh, without having to worry about the ROI or the runtime of it, yeah, that a lot of the horizontally scaled platforms have. How did you come up with the MLDB system in the first place? Now, that system there has been distilled out of an existing business we have in marketing technology where we sell real-time predictions and the modeling and the data infrastructure that goes behind them. 
Yeah, that's a pretty decently sized business. We get several trillion rows of data every month from our customers and we train thousands of models over that data on a daily basis and make millions of predictions every second. So there's some significant scale there. The system is used to optimise marketing spend gain some kind of an observable outcome like a purchase or a sign up to a newsletter or something like that. And you know, the marketing spend could be in in terms of ads bought or you know products recommended or email sent or anything like that. It's you know it, it's uh, can work in multiple channels. What we sell there is just the predictive core. We don't sell the actual data itself or we don't sell you know ad impressions or anything like that. It's a pure machine learning tool which is used by our customers. Maybe tell us a bit about um, use cases, right? So you didn't mention use cases before, but I'm trying to get a sense, is MLDB relevant for everybody? And you can talk a bit about both on the technical side, the types of sort of algorithms, the the, uh, tool, the platform is supporting, as well as some concrete business examples that you believe MLDB is best fitted for. Yeah, so the maybe I'll start by saying what MLDB is not suited for because that will help uh, you know, to understand how we define the problem. MLDB for it is not the best solution for when you know that you are going to need you know tens or hundreds or thousands of machines to to run with your data sets. So it is not designed to solve these you know, enormous problems that you need to distribute. Now, a thousand machines, you know, if you have two terabyte machines, is uh, you know, is two petabytes of data, and you know, there are not actually that many use cases where you do need petabytes of data to go into one model. But if you have that, your MLDB is not the right solution. Okay. What MLDB is designed for is your know, medium to large problems where the the time to market is important where the system can be complex because there are multiple data sources that need to be joined together each of which contribute to to the result where the systems probably need to be run in in real time and where the overall runtime efficiency of the system is is important and you're willing to make potentially some trade-offs in terms of you know tenth of a percent in accuracy in order to you know, make the, the system 10% more efficient or something like that. And you know, those systems are typically line of business type systems, so where you are not interested in theoretical performance, you're interested in some kind of blend that will optimise the overall ROI of a solution. Uh, MLDB is a, is a very, very effective solution to those kinds of problems. How about the algorithms supported? So what, what types of algorithms do you support on the platform? The MLDB has the best in breed uh, solution to some of the lighter weight algorithms like random forest or you know, things like that. It, it's you know, typically multiple times faster than anything else that you can get out there. Uh, MLDB is you know, under development. Uh, we have a, you know, a kind of an alpha TensorFlow integration as well. So you, you can use MLDB for machine for deep learning type use cases. You know, it's going to help you with the data universe around it and things like that. It's not you know, a better version of TensorFlow or anything like that. You know, it's obviously, uh, if you use that solution there, you, know, you're, you have the same kind of advantages and limitations that it have. 
But yeah, MLDB is, is also good at integrating with external systems. So if you, you know, if part of your prediction you need to you know, look up something in an external database or you need to call an external API or something like that, your know, MLDB can help you to uh, pull all those things together. And <clears throat> finally, it's very, very good at dealing with any kind of sparse data. If you have your data which comes from, say, transactions or log files or, uh, you know, or user behavior or, or things like that, you know, as opposed to something which is more like you know, videos or images, which are which tend to be kind of uh, higher information density. Yeah, MLDB is, is a great solution to those problems because it's very efficient at using those kinds of data. So if I, if I think a bit about the steps for, for R&D to prioritize machine learning, so there is that step of, of training the models, I mean, do, doing the feature engineering first, training the models, and then running the models in production and with, with quality across the board, uh, quality assurance. Um, so where, where would MLDB fit in? So I can understand you're, you're, you're helping on the training side, but I believe you also run the models in production and you, you expose an API for every, every model trained on your platform. Yeah, so one of the core features of MLDB is that the once a model is trained, it's also available in production in that everything that you do on MLDB has an HTTP endpoint. And so once your model is trained, you can run in production and you can also export it uh, to you know, whatever machines you want to scale out across and, and run it in production there. So it definitely helps you to solve uh, those kinds of issues. The other things that you can do with MLDB, you can combine multiple, uh, you know, underlying models for prediction so you can for example run a frozen model and run a quality check on the model and, and have them both in production and that will allow you to you know for example put your monitoring logic inside mldb so it, it happens at the same time as a prediction and so we can say you know this variable is out of range don't trust the prediction and yeah, that can go into a monitoring system or that can go into a you know cause it to ignore the prediction or whatever makes sense in, in the system there so you're not constrained to just make predictions with it. You can also incorporate the, the business logic that you need to put those predictions in context as part of MLDB as well. And you know, that's all based on our experience with putting these kinds of systems into production where you know, it's not just the ability to make a prediction that's important, it's the ability to do that in the context that, uh, of you know, the system that uh, the machine learning is installed within. Great, so we're back to the most important topic, which is monitoring end-to-end, -end, I guess. For the CTOs out there, um, can you maybe talk a bit about the different tools, services for training machine learning models and running them in production? Um, so I'm thinking here Spark, Microsoft Azure Machine Learning, Amazon ML, uh, even IBM Watson, um, and, and you, you talked about MLDB, and I guess you, you did compare the tools a bit from a from a scaling standpoint, MLDB being a vertically first kind of um, uh, value prop, uh, while a Spark would, would be a scale out kind of a kind of a discussion. Uh, but maybe you can you can compare and contrast them across other dimensions. Yeah, so I think if you want to bring machine learning in, yeah, you it's probably not the machine learning platform which is going to be the first decision you should make. You you should initially think, you know, what are the problems you're trying to solve and then, and then try and match it. You know, one of the anti-patterns I see all the time is choosing a tool or a platform first and then trying to you know, squeeze a solution in. Sometimes I don't 
yeah, they don't work. So if you start from the kind of the lowest level, yeah, there are machine learning libraries out there all over the place, and there, yeah, there are, yeah, weaker is something which yeah, a lot of people have been exposed to. Yeah, it, it's a uh, it's been around for a long time and it, it's very robust. You know, a lot of people get great performances by using that or you know, if they have access to uh, some of the tools from you know, SAS or SAP or, or even your Excel, you can actually run some reasonable machine learning inside with some of the external plugins. So you know, that basic set of tools, they can be really, really useful for an initial exploration of you know, what kind of a value is there going to be to solving machine learning with this, uh, with this problem you know, without putting a huge amount of, uh, of effort into it. And uh, you know, especially some of the platforms there which require you know, long installation, you need to talk to IT to get them installed or things like that. You know, it might not be a first as a first step, it might not make sense to, to use those. So if you go another level up, you start to get the systems. You know, these are typically based on a horizontal scale out, which are you know, machine learning or analytics platforms. Now we're talking the you know, the Sparks or the H2Os of the world. Uh, yeah, or Hadoop, obviously, which is you know, a little bit older and, and less suited to machine learning, but is still used a lot. And those platforms there, you know, what you're doing if you're using one of those platforms is you're saying, uh, you know, I want access to this big community with this very diverse set of use cases there, you know, both machine learning and, and general analytics. And the most important problem that I know I'm going to need to solve is the ability to scale this thing out horizontally. And you know, if those are your problems, then you know, those tools have a lot of good uh, characteristics uh, in how you use them. You know, they, they have good support communities around them. There are, uh, you know, they do have the ability to scale out horizontally. I mean, it, it it's, you know, can be inefficient as compared to running it in memory, but you know, certainly, it's a lot better than Hadoop or you know, rolling your own solution. And that's where, that's where you go into the hundreds of terabytes or petabytes uh, use cases. Exactly. If you, if you know that your data set is uh, you know, going to be bigger than you could you know, fit even in a, you know, a small rack of servers, then you know, those tools are great, uh, are great tools to use. If you then kind of go in a different direction, you know, if your problem is not that your data is so big, that your problem is that your infrastructure is a big headache for you, that's when you can get into tools like Azure Machine Learning or Amazon Machine Learning Platform or things like that. You know, those tools there, they, they say, hey, the most important issue with machine learning is the infrastructure, and so we're going to make this this uh, machine learning platform where you don't even have to think about infrastructure at all. You just put your data there, you get the result back. You don't necessarily have a lot of control over what machine learning is happening. So if you need to understand the characteristics of the algorithm, you know, you're, you're, it's you know, a little bit uh, difficult to, to do that. But yeah, that will give you a prediction and you, know, you can make as few or as many predictions as you want. You know, typically, those systems there, they, they start to have ROI issues in that the, the cost per prediction is expensive. So as you start to, to scale out, you know, they become a major cost. But you know, if that's the quickest way to get started, by all means, you know, get started on those, on those systems, especially if infrastructure is a thing which, you, which you're concerned about. 
And then, you know, finally, there's things like uh, Watson, which provide uh, a large, and Watson, there are lots of you know, APIs which either provide, you know, some more equivalent functionality to bits and pieces of Watson there. And that's where, you, where you're saying, well, the most important thing for me to solve is that I have a particular problem domain or use case characteristics and I need to uh, to solve that first. And in those cases there, you know, running on a system which is designed to solve the same problem as, as you're solving is important. You know, the, the issue with that is you need to show that you have some kind of a differentiated value proposition over those over those tools. It's hard to get away from, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, if you're running on Watson, you know, in some ways Watson, IBM owns your business or they at least own a, a big part of your value proposition. And so you need to understand that that's a case and either have an exit strategy or know that it doesn't really matter. Are all businesses building on, on IBM Watson tied to the platform? In other words, what's your take on the level of lock-in with Watson? I think it depends on, if you look at Watson's value proposition, you can split into two halves. There is a value that comes from the data that they have collected. You know, the data itself is not so important, but the, the annotations that they've made to it are pretty valuable. And so if your value proposition is based on Watson's proprietary data and there's no alternative to that, then you know, it can be hard to get off. If it's only based on the algorithms and the you have alternatives to the actual data sources there, and there are always more alternatives than, than you might think, uh, then it is possible to, to get off Watson. You know, it might not be an easy thing to do, but there's, you know, there is an exit strategy. So it really depends on which part of Watson's uh, you know, value proposition that you're, you're building on top of. Going back to... to your third bucket, I think, the, the Amazon ML and the Microsoft Azure ML, those two are, are, are the same in the sense that they, they take the infrastructure pain away from you, but they're also a bit dissimilar in the sense that my Microsoft Azure ML is still a studio where you go and design your own data pipelines and algorithms, um, while Amazon ML is more of sort of a black box. I mean, with Amazon ML, I can just upload the data set, train a model via an API call, and then send new data over to Amazon and get back predictions. Isn't that too simple to be true? So again, if, if you're, you're giving up a lot in order to have Amazon solve your infrastructure problems, yeah, there's certainly valid use cases of that technology. The adoption hasn't been that great, and you know, I think that's largely because it doesn't address a lot of the issues that we were talking about earlier. You know, if infrastructure really is your main problem, it's a good solution, and you know, it will scale and, and so on. But you know, it does come with other issues, you know, the two main ones being that it's a black box, and so you can't reason about how it's solving your problem, and the ROI on it is, is poor, especially as you start to scale. Yeah, if we expand on the ROI a bit, uh, there are lots of problems where machine learning just simply isn't used at all where it could be because of those ROI problems. Yeah, MLDB can help you a lot there. It's about 50,000 times cheaper per prediction than Amazon machine learning when you, when you uh, run it and host it yourself. And so it op opens up all kinds of other use cases that let you focus more on the art of machine learning and how it can make your business better and less about the, you know, the infrastructure issues that... Uh, uh, Amazon machine learning is trying to solve. Great, Jeremy. This was a great discussion, both from a business and, and technical standpoint. 
maybe let's end the podcast by talking a bit about trends. So the top conference in machine learning NIPS took place in Montreal three weeks ago. Then we had the Creative Destruction Lab at the University of Toronto. They hosted a now annual conference on machine learning and the market for intelligence. And that conference actually had a great roster of speakers, panelists from startups, investors, and academia alike. I believe you attended the Toronto event. Any takeaways you'd like to share from, from that event? The University of Toronto conference, uh, I was there and I enjoyed that conference a lot. I mean, I think the biggest takeaway there is that there are a lot of people trying to figure out, you know, what this very, very rapid change means and, you know, how to position companies that are doing machine learning to, you know, firstly to stay relevant in the face of a large amount of very, very powerful technology, which is, you know, open and free to use uh, coming onto the market. And secondly, you know, as the positioning and marketing aspect you know, becomes more important, it's no longer possible to say, hey, I use machine learning and that be, you know, and I'm using it to solve a problem. I would agree, actually. I think I, I noticed kind of the same thing in terms of most people were, were in search for answers as opposed to having answers. And primarily on the, on the business side, uh, I think the, the research side was well represented. I think we had Geoff Hinton, we had Russ, um, and we had Ilya as well, uh, the OpenAI research director. Uh, Russ, as you know, I mean, he's one of Geoff Hinton's students, and he's going to be starting at CMU. Apparently, CMU has a machine learning department, which is, which is quite unique for a university. Um, but yeah, from, from a business standpoint, I think most people I talked to were, were in search of answers and, and not having too many answers to, to how to apply machine learning, which is quite interesting. Yeah, um, so I think you know, that what that shows us is that this is something where there is a yeah, set of you know, technical advances that have kind of blown open the uh, whole set of possibilities and where you know, the business world, which is used to being kind of ahead of the curve, you know, is suddenly struggling to, to figure it out. You know, some, some companies obviously have been thinking about this for a long time and they're well positioned, but everyone else is, you know, and the, you know, the investor community as well are trying to figure out, you know, what's, what's going on and what does that mean? Like, does this change everything or, you know, how, how does that uh, affect what we're doing? And, the, you know, the answers to that are not simple. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, work which people need to do to figure out, you know, how important things are and what, what is important and what are the directions to go. So is machine learning being overhyped or maybe underhyped or maybe it's about just putting in more work like you say? Well, I think that machine learning itself is just starting to enter into the kind of the steep part of the S curve and you know, I think it's going to be quite transformative. It's going to have a similar effect on the prosperity that the PC had you know, through the 80s and 90s. So it's going to be, you know, in some ways, it's a new front, it's a new dimension in which uh, the world can become more efficient and, you know, could even have something to do with improving the productivity gains, which have been, you know, in some ways uh, part of the economic issues a lot of uh, Western societies are having at the moment. So I think, you know, for machine learning itself, I don't think it's been particularly overhyped. But if you have a look in the timeframes that you know, the startup and investor world's working, I think that we're in crazy overhype. I think it's going to take longer and it's going to be more diffuse than, than people think about. The 
other thing which I heard a lot about is a thesis that proprietary data assets are where the value is in, in machine learning companies at the moment. And, you know, to be even more controversial, you know, I would like to call that, uh, you know, to call bullshit on that thesis. Because you know, I think that if you have a look at what the nature of a data asset is, it's only really valuable as compared to the cheapest way to reproduce that data asset elsewhere. And a lot of companies have very similar data assets that are being valued as if they were difficult to, to collect. One of the things that machine learning makes a lot easier is if you have a particular kind of data that you need to acquire, then machine learning, especially modern techniques that have been, uh, you know, we've been talking about recently, make that data far, far easier to, to get. And so the marginal cost of replicating these data assets is actually dropping very, very fast, you know, which means that if the main asset that a, that a company has is data, the value of that data is dropping fast. You know, if you told me, hey, I have a data set which I collected which has you know, geological surveys of asteroids that I collected by sending robotic probes to them, then I would believe that the data set was, you know, on that measure, the data set was valuable because it's very hard for someone else to replicate. They need to actually you know, buy rocket fuel to, to do so. But you know, most of the data sets that, that uh, these uh, investment hypotheses are based on are not uh, difficult to replicate at all. And I think that you know, we're going to see a big correction in the value of startups which have, you know, proprietary data assets unless they have something which is very very unique about it and, and defensible which most of them don't so it would it would be a discussion by industry probably on on the on the defensibility side so i, I would expect a company in healthcare um being able to to have sort of a larger moat than a company than a company in martech for instance when it comes to the data acquisition and the differentiation on one hand on the other if you have two competing companies in healthcare in the same space i guess they have probably the sim similar data uh, and uh, one having more data points doesn't doesn't add a lot of value in the process well the thing is though that let's say that let's let's drill into that a little let's say that you are a company in the medical technology space and you're doing something you know, based on mri scans then the component, you have two components to your data. You have a set of MRI scans that you, you, you need to get from somewhere and you have some, probably have some kind of labeling which is made saying, you know, this is this particular kind of disease or this is not and you have positives and negative examples there. The, what you're saying then is that it's very hard for anyone to find MRI data or to, to tag other MRIs. Yeah, that, that, that's your advantage. And yeah, that, that's, that may well be true. I'm sure it is true in, in certain industries, but that's, that's something which I think uh, needs a little bit more analysis because for a lot of these companies, yeah, there is a, yeah, for example, McGill University uh, has a completely free to access MRI database that they they just released uh, uh, to anyone who asked for it, you know, anyone who who's performing research there. And so, yeah, I think that those value prospects, uh, value propositions, need to be uh, yeah need to be analysed a little bit further before we say that you know, the only place to make money in machine learning is in proprietary data. I actually think that workflow tools are going to be much more important than the actual data itself with respect to a lasting value proposition.
Thanks for listening. For the Impact Podcast, I'm John Pryle.